0: Good morning. Welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class for St. Paul's Lutheran Church here in DePere, Missouri. Uh, Welcome to all the members of St. Paul's who are listening. Uh, Welcome to those listening in the St. Louis area area on AM 850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. My name is Tanner Wade, Assistant Pastor here at St. Paul's, and is our usual practice, we will be looking at the lessons for the upcoming Sunday, which is September 20th. Uh, There's a few really interesting lessons coming up for that weekend, so it'll be a great chance to dive into not only what God's Word has to say, but also how that then applies to us in our lives today. But before we begin, let us have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you as your humble servants, thankful for the many gifts you've given us. We pray that you would keep us humble as we continue to study your Word, that you would uh, give us that desire to meditate on your Word day day. And night, Lord. We pray that as we go about our weekend, as we go about uh, our lives in the upcoming weekend, as we continue to navigate the uncertain realities of this pandemic, that you would uh, guide us with that peace from you which transcends all understanding. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, first to begin with for today, we are going to look at the gospel reading. The gospel reading is a parable uh, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew chapter 20. And because uh, we are not in person, you will not have your uh, the normal sheets that we'd ordinarily hand out with those lessons on it. So I'm going to go ahead and read for us what the lesson uh, is from Matthew chapter 20, the gospel reading for September 20th. And then we're going to go through the context and then go through the reading as we ordinarily would. So Matthew 20, starting at verse 1. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first shall be last. As it is with so many readings, the context surrounding uh, this pericope for this particular Sunday not only heightens um, our sense of where and what is going on in the gospel of Matthew uh, as our reading is happening, but also perhaps why and the motivation for why this parable is told in this particular moment. So going back to Matthew chapter 19, just before uh, this section begins, it's the story, well not the story, but the narrative of the, the rich young man coming to Jesus and saying to him, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, there's only one who's good. If you would enter eternal life, just keep the commandments. And this rich man says, well, which commandments? And so Jesus tells him. And the young man says, well, all these commandments I have kept. Jesus says, well, then if you're so perfect, go sell all that you have and give it away to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And of course, when the young man hears this, he goes away sad, disparaged, dismayed, sorrowful, because he had a lot of possessions. And then we get to the point which really leads into our parable. It's Jesus turning to his disciples and saying to them, truly, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want to spend too much time getting into that particular phrase, and certainly a lot of ink has been written about those verses there, um, with the what what is the eye of a needle or a camel going through it, and what 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 is Jesus really saying there? That doesn't quite as much relate to our parable here as it does uh, to the rich man's own attitude, but you can see why. Um, Jesus gives the parable that he does in, in Matthew chapter 20, immediately following what the disciples say to him after they have just witnessed this interaction between Jesus and the rich young man. So when the disciples hear Jesus say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They are astonished and say to Jesus, who then can be saved? And here's an important reminder Jesus gives them. With man, it's impossible. With man, based on our works, no one can be saved. But with God, uh, all things are possible. So what conversation have the disciples just been having with Jesus? They see this rich young man. Jesus makes this proclamation that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They wonder, well then, who could be saved? And part of that is the cultural understanding in that day especially, but we even still fall into this today, that our material possessions are indicative of how much God cares about us or loves us. Uh, and certainly God does bless us with everything that we have. Uh, it's something we should never forget, right? That God gives us our daily bread in many in different forms. But they, under that assumption that God loves people more and therefore he blesses them says well then who could be saved if even the rich if it's that difficult for them to save themselves who possibly can be saved and Jesus says it's impossible with but with God all things are possible and then Peter turns to Jesus and says well look Jesus we have left everything and followed you and here's the kicker here's the thing Peter throws in which highlights in many ways our own human sinfulness at its core he says to Jesus, what then will we have? What reward falls to us? Because we aren't rich. We, in fact, throughout any possibility of becoming rich and followed you. So now what do we get? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12,000 thr- thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who... Has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then we go immediately into our parable. So our parable is an explanation of what Jesus means by saying this and why he is saying this to the disciples because their initial response of well, then, what do we receive? Because we were, we were on this train early. We left everything early on and followed you. And then we get into our parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house. This master goes out early. He agrees with a certain set of laborers early in the day, around 6 a.m. or so, to pay them a set amount of wages, a very fair amount, uh, what would be the standard. There'd be nothing wrong with what the master is doing. In fact, this master is bestowing a blessing on the laborers by giving them a fair pay, good pay. And so he agrees with them at the start of the day um, for these guys to come work in his vineyard. But then if you were hearing this for the first time, what the master does next is a little bit strange, or maybe it will be strange later on as, as we continue on in the parable. He goes out in about the third hour around 9 a.m., and sees people standing in the marketplace, and he hires them. And here's a critical thing. He doesn't say for how much specifically. Rather, he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. So these laborers go out and work in the vineyard three hours later than the first set. And then the sixth hour, so right around noon, they go out. This the ninth hour, the master does the same. And the understanding here is with these first... Well, the first group was given a denarius. The second, third, and fourth groups are given, uh, as the master described it, whatever will be just or right. And then in the 11th hour, he sees other people standing in the marketplace and says to them, go into the vineyard as well. You know, just one thing to point out here is that for those who – Uh, he hired in the 11th hour at the last part of the day, right before it got dark and you could no longer work in the field. There's no discussion of pay at all. In fact, he just says, go. And so when evening comes, the owner of the vineyard calls out to his foreman, his, his, you know, uh, captain, the guy in charge, make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Call the laborers up and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And that's the first, this will be the first time that something seems very strange, perhaps, to the disciples and those who would be listening to this parable. Because when the 11th hour comes, each of them receive a denarius. Each group receives the exact same payment. Now, conventional human wisdom understands very quickly the issue with this. Most of us have spent some sort of day outside working in uh, the the St. Louis heat, at least, with the humidity uh, and and high temperatures and know how exhausting that can be. And if someone had agreed to pay you, let's just use $20 to go out all day, start from 6 a.m. And obviously that's a very low amount, but just for the sake of argument's sake, they pay uh, $20 to go out all day and work. And then send someone out 15 minutes, send them out at 5.45 and you you guys were done at 6, so they were only out there 15, 20 minutes, and you've been out there 12 hours, and they gave them $20, Uh, conventional human wisdom very quickly understands why the first group would feel so grieved, why the first group gets so upset, why they may feel like either they're being underpaid or that later group is being overpaid. Now, so when the hired group came up, we're in verse 10 of Matthew 20, the first, the, those hired first came up. They fought based on seeing what the others had got that they would receive more. But each of them also received just a denarius. And I say it like that because now it seems unfair. Now it seems like things are not just or right for those who were hired early in the day. Conventional human wisdom would say, they have every right to be very, very upset. They worked far more hours than those who came in the 11th hour, who came for the last part of the day, not even the hottest part of the day. Why are they getting paid the same? And perhaps maybe that first group excitedly, when they saw the reward, the same reward they had previously been promised, when they saw the reward given or the uh, to those who came late, maybe they started even doing the math. All right. Well. They came at the 11th hour. That's one. We've been here 12 hours. So 12, you know, this could be almost two weeks worth of pay. But remember, this is a parable specifically talking about the kingdom of heaven. So a reward 12 fold of what someone who worked, one of the laborers who came at the 11th hour would make. And so they start grumbling. They start arguing with the master of the house. And they say that very thing we Uh, we as humans can uh, relate to in its entirety that uh, the Master has made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But then the Master's response is very interesting because he doesn't disagree that they have been working longer, perhaps that they did more, but rather... He replies to them, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And what's interesting here is that first, think of this master, this master that um, was of a much greater standing, was of a much greater societal standing, economic standing, uh, than a laborer who was needing, desperate for work in a marketplace. And the first thing I want you to notice in verse 13 is how he responds. These laborers grumble to him, and he doesn't say... Listen, fool, or he doesn't say, you know, be quiet, unimportant one, and he doesn't say, you know, he doesn't belittle them. In fact, he refers to them as friend, and in uh, in the Greek, it's etyros, etyros, a comrade, a companion, a friend, someone who has something in common or an association with one another. That this master is speaking to this one as an equal when societally that would not be how he needs to speak to this laborer. In fact, most would say that's probably not how he should be speaking to this laborer. Rather, as the laborer comes and complains to him, he speaks to him as an equal and says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. See, you realize in this parable that the problem is really not between the laborer and the master. In fact, the laborer has done exactly what he was hired to do for, and he has been paid. The master has fulfilled his obligation to that laborer. The problem becomes when the laborers start to compare themselves to one another. The problem becomes when they look at those who the master also paid a denarius the same amount but they did not work as long and they think of themselves compared to those first laborers or sorry compared to the later the latter laborers if these the implication is if these first laborers had never known what the latter ones would be given had never seen it or if those latter ones had not been hired the la, the first laborers would have no problem at all, that they would be very much um, happy with how things went that day. They executed a contract for a very fair and reasonable amount, yet the comparison to their fellow workers, ones who they feel better than, or they feel they deserve more than, even though their agreement was not with the fellow workers, but rather with the master, It's when they start comparing themselves that the true problem starts to emerge. And you see their envy and and their jealousy and their anger when they start comparing themselves to one another instead of focusing on what they and the master had discussed. So one of the main points of this parable here is, one, um, when we're talking about fellow Christians, and especially when we're talking about God's love for us, uh, comparisons really have no um, comparisons between one another, have no place in the Christian life as far as, well, God must love me more than he loves so-and-so over here. Or God must love him because he gave him X more than so-and-so over here. That that is should be antithetical to what we do as Christians. Rather, we should focus on the fact that we are all, Uh, given the same reward by God, the same reward undeservedly. You know, if that master didn't come into the picture, if the master didn't go and seek out the laborers, there would be no denarius, no reward, no payment, no way to sustain their life. And yet these laborers, these laborers who have been given this, uh, given exactly what the master promised to give them, are angry, are envious, are jealous. And especially today, we can be so tempted in comparing uh, our lives and comparing ourselves, really, if we were to be honest. We start comparing ourselves to others, and not only what they have on earth, but maybe even thinking, well, surely God's got to love me more because I did this, or I never fell into that temptation like that guy over there, or even God must love me more because I've been a Christian my whole life. I was baptized the day after I was born, or even the day I was born, and I have never stopped going to church. So therefore, God must love me more. And Jesus's reminder to the disciples, the disciples who would say, "Hey, Jesus, remember we left everything and followed you," so remind us again, what are we going to receive? His reminder to them is that the first shall be last, and the uh, or the so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Meaning there is no longevity achievement. There is no uh, s- sort of being grandfathered into this extra level of membership into the kingdom of heaven. No, God's love for you, no matter when you first knew how much he loved you, uh, is the same he has for all people. And the first and obvious a ramification of that is it does not matter if you've known who Jesus is and what he's done for you, uh, what his sacrifice on the cross means for you and the forgiveness of your sins. If you've known that year since the minute you were born, or you don't know it until the day you die, your reward is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that's how this parable begins for the kingdom of heaven is like this. And it's a great reminder, actually, of grace, especially when we get so caught up with what is fair, what is right, and oftentimes what is fair and what is right in our own mind really is whatever what best serves us, what is what what makes things easiest for us. But Jesus is reminded to the disciples is what is just, what is right, is what the master chooses to give. In verse 15, we read, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? And I pray that uh, we would, especially in in times like these, never um, start begrudging the generosity of God, the the generosity that he gave to us in our faith, the reality that um, God's love for us is undeserved, and We have no business trying to demand more out of him. In fact, we shouldn't even receive anything. And yet he graciously and freely and richly gives it to us. And we ought to be thankful for that, appreciative of that. In fact, that ought to be um, the basis for the love and and the honor that we show um, that reflect the love and the honor that God gave us in our reward in heaven. So that kind of wraps up our discussion there on the gospel reading. And next, I want us to look at uh, what is assigned as the psalm of the day, which is a pretty well-known psalm, Psalm 27. So I'll read it again, um, because, and it's just verses 1 through 9, I should add, not the, not the whole psalm, not all the way uh, to verse 14, but I will talk a little bit about uh, what the entirety of the psalm has to say, especially because it's just an extra five verses. But the assigned reading is, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation in the land of the living. And like I said, that is the signed psalm, Psalm 27, 1 through 9, but I did want to read, because it's just five more verses, the rest of the psalm. So if you don't hear this uh, on Sunday, it's because it's not technically part of the, the assigned reading for this psalm for this Sunday, but it's good to read anyways. Uh, so continuing on to verse 10, we had just read, O God of my salvation in the land of the living, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, one of the really interesting parts about the psalm is, first of all, it is a psalm of David. I should point that out. We want to, anytime the... um, Prefix to the psalm includes who the author is. It's good to just take note of that. But you notice the rhetorical questions that begin the psalm. There's two of them. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And the second is still in verse one there. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And why that's interesting is sometimes we don't always think about this. You know, it's a little reminiscent of Psalm 23, um, uh, you know, where he goes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Um, here, it's a rhetorical question where the answer is not given, but it is directly implied. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? No one. Nothing. Absolutely Zip. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Again, the clear answer, even though it's not given, um, the clear implication is absolutely nothing. And so then when we continue into verse 2, we read, When evil evildoers, evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Why is it they who stumble and fall? Because the Lord is for me. And in verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Why would you not need to be afraid if an army encircled you and camped against you? Because the Lord is on your side. And though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. It's an interesting confidence that the psalmist points out here. something that we often forget we'd like it if it says there will never be an army encamped against me because i trusted in the lord or that there will never be a war to rise against me because i was confident in god but no he acknowledges that these things will happen and yet it is those things those moments of trial those moments of uh, frustration those moments of maybe even that the world would say we ought to be very very afraid Of course, many of us know what that's like to live uh, during a pandemic right now. It is in those moments, though, that you're still confident, that your heart still shall not fear, that you know it is not uh, anything else that's going to conquer you or harm you because nothing can separate you, as Romans 8 says, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That the Lord, when the Lord is your light and your salvation, you need not be afraid of anything. When he's the stronghold of your life, you need not have any fear over what's about to happen. And we continue in verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And in verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. There's a couple uh, just images there I wanted to to discuss. And the first is um, this idea that he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Or that one might dwell in the house of the Lord Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, inquire in his temple. There is the the very real sense of this means to be worshiping God in his temple. Um, But there's also something that's important to remember is that in a desert dwelling, in in the middle of a desert or a wilderness area, um, being under a tent can not only protect you from the elements, but whatever else is out there, that there is an element of, of safety that comes from simply having uh, the proverbial and the very true roof over your head, even if that roof is made of canvas or uh, in one, as he would say, cover under his tent or hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Um, so there is one element where very truly uh, David is talking about his worship and, and his faith in God, leading him to God's holy temple, but also the reality of When you're in trouble, one of the things you need to find in a desert or in a wilderness is shelter. And David points out that it will be God's shelter. It will be God's stronghold. It will be God's tent. It will be God's house that he takes refuge in. And we read, he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And there that phrase um, in verse six, uh, my head shall be lifted up. That's indicative of victory. That is indicative of one who has um, been established as greater. In Isaiah chapter two, that sort of image is used to describe the mountain of the house of the Lord, that it shall be lifted, established as the highest of the mountains. That means the greatest of the mountains or the loftiest the best of the mountains, and here same thing. Uh, when we read, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, it means he's been victorious. He has been, uh, he has persevered, triumphed over those enemies of his, and that's why he responds with, and I will offer in his in the in the Lord's tent sacrifices, with shouts of joy and sing and make melody to the Lord. Here is a, a great reminder in these first six verses of what we can trust in when we face trouble. And we certainly know what it's like to face a lot of uh, trouble or uncertainty in the last few months. But David, in, in a sense, has given himself a little bit of a pep talk here uh, because the implication is that clearly some sort of enemy, some sort of army has, in fact, um, waged war uh, on him. Someone has spoken out. Uh, against him. And so these first six verses are almost uh, an internal rhetorical pep talk of sorts that David gives to himself. Um, and then you hear what he says in verse 7, uh, his pleas to God. He's reminding himself of what God will do for him. And then in verse 7, he lifts his pleas to God. He boldly asks God, gives his uh, his anxieties, his stress, his pain, His frustration gives it up to God and says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation in the land of the living and that is where our psalm ends, but that gives some pretty good context to what uh, comes right after it, where it's really a continuation, which is why it's, it's a little bit tough when it ends um, just five five verses from having the entirety of the psalm um, in the service for that weekend. And in verse 10, we read, For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me saying, Even a family, those who you think would under any circumstance um, shelter you, protect you, guard you. Uh, if they have they have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And so there is those 7 through 12. That is David's request to God. That is his plead, his supplication, his petition to God to help him out of the situation that he's in. And then he kind of ends with that same sort of pep talk, that same sort of reminder that uh, he started with the first six verses with saying in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And here in verse 14, the last verse of the Psalm, it's a great, uh, it shows you just how human uh, David is and and really the emotions in the, in the humanity in the Psalms, especially just the emotion that presents itself um, because uh, David has to remind himself twice, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I wonder how many times we couldn't be better served in our lives, uh, taking a moment to take a deep breath and say that uh, a few times. We need to wait for the Lord, wait for his timing on things. Because it's not our timing, it's not our will, but his will. But that is the Psalm of the day, Psalm 27, a little bit longer than we'd actually get Uh for next Sunday, but we will continue now by looking uh, at the uh, Old Testament and the Epistle reading, and we're going to start with the Epistle reading, which is from Philippians chapter one. And in it, uh, I am going to read uh, really. So, in the reading that's assigned, it's twelve through fourteen of Romans one, followed by nineteen through thirty. But again, to give some continuity to what we're reading. Um, I think it would be helpful for us to, uh, we'll read it, but then also get some context, uh, bet- especially between, but also um, before our reading begins in Philippians 1. So we start at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then, as the assigned reading, it would jump to verse 19 from the end of verse 14 there, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed Convinced of this I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again not uh, only let your sorry only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or in absent I might hear you that you are standing firm in one spirit Now, one of the reasons I wanted to make sure we covered the context before and um, kind of the context of Philippians, but also what's between that is the way it's cut um, for the purpose of the lectionary leaves some ambiguity and and maybe some even confusion as to what Paul is exactly um, talking about. So first, to just get it out of the way, you could probably guess by what we read, but Paul is currently when he writes Philippians, imprisoned in Rome, it's around 60 or so AD. And so uh, Paul had received some sort of something, some sort of help, whether monetarily or physical um, support or help from the Philippian church. So this is, in one way, a thank you letter, but also in a very much more important way, an encouragement to the Philippian church, to those in Philippi, um, to not only stay strong but ultimately to rejoice in what God has done and continues to do for them. Uh, So one of the things I wanted to cover was right after verse 14, we stopped with, And uh, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Right after that, in verse 15, we read, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on here. This is one of those parts that's a little bit strange, which is why it's not included uh, with the rest of the reading, because what you don't want is to think, oh, Paul is saying, you know, be disingenuous, but as long as you're speaking about the Bible or about Jesus, that's okay. No. Obviously, as Christians, we should have a true faith. We should truly believe, and especially when we're proclaiming who Jesus is, um, it's very important. Um, It's the foundation of no one can truly proclaim who Jesus is unless they themselves believe and have faith in what he has done for them and who he is for themselves. But rather, Paul's point is if preaching Christ is done out of a pretense, Christ is still proclaimed. That if preaching Christ is done in a pretense, Christ still is proclaimed and whenever Christ is proclaimed, he can rejoice. But why do I uh, include that? It's, well, those words, I will rejoice. And in verse 18, yes, again, I will rejoice. That's one of those themes that Paul is trying to remind the Philippians of throughout this book, throughout Philippians. And even in Philippians 4, that's where we uh, get the the verse in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And that is, if there could be maybe a key um, theme or a key motto or tagline from this, that may be it. Because One of the key parts of Philippians is reminding those in Philippi that if they have hardship, if they have trouble, if things don't go their way, they are still called to rejoice, just as Paul himself still is rejoicing, even though the world would say he's in a miserable situation, that he's not really sure if he's going to live or die. He's in prison, and that's not exactly fun, especially in the first century Rome. And yet Paul still will rejoice, rejoice in knowing who God is, knowing who Christ is. And ultimately, that is his point when he says, um, which is probably the most famous verse from this section, in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You notice he doesn't say, um, for me to live, that, that's worth it for me. No, he is reminded that when we are call, what we are called to do in this life is for God. And that is a huge, huge blessing. Just in verse 22, he says, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means that fruitful labor is for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, meaning he could either be sentenced to death or he could live. Um, And he acknowledges that he, at times, desires to go be with Christ, For that is, in verse 23, far better. And truly, we do know. That's why when we have a funeral, we say this is a celebration. The celebration of one's entrance into the church triumphant, into the eternal uh, life that God has given to us. Yet, Paul says that is his desire. But to remain in the flesh, however, is more necessary on the church in Philippi's account. In other... For the sake of other Christians, on their account, saying in verse twenty-five, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all through all your progress and joy in the faith, so that you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you are unified. And here again is that encouragement that Paul gives the church in Philippi in this letter, that you are going to have to endure things, but you can do it. And all Christians know this, that we do endure sometimes really terrible situations. Perhaps you even feel like this is one of them Uh, (laughs) under the current pandemic. Yet, you notice how much joy is in Paul's letter, how much joy is still in Paul's life. And really, when you get to the end of Philippians, and this will be in a few weeks in the lectionary reading to Philippians 4, uh, verse 13, which so often gets taken out of context, I can do all things through him uh, who strengthens me, or I can do all things through him who gives me strength, however you want to translate it, and where it often becomes, that means I can do all these good, amazing feats. Well, God does bless us and gives us certain skills, and sometimes we're able to use those to do amazing things. But the true sense of that is we can endure all things because God strengthens us, that we can get through the trial and the hardship. And here in the first part of that of this book, that's in the that's towards the end in in chapter four. In the first part, Paul starts his letter with that same uh, proclamation to the church in Philippi that uh, what has happened to him is not a good thing. At least what the world would say is a good thing. But what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. And that when Christ is proclaimed, it is in that that Paul will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So it's a great reminder, especially today, where things, if we were to be honest, are are a little bit negative in our world. We we tend to have a little bit of gloom, pessimism about what the future holds. Um, And the reality is we don't truly know. But I can tell you what Paul would probably tell us to do is, no matter what that future has in store for us, rejoice. Um, at least uh, that is the reminder he gives the church in Philippi in Philippians one. Now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 55, and we're going to cover the last of the four lessons uh, for today. In Isaiah 55, verse six or verses, I should say, six through nine. So Isaiah 55, verses six through nine, and again, I'll read it for you in case you're traveling in the car, uh, maybe doing some things around the house. So we've got Isaiah 55, 6 through 9, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts uh, higher than your thoughts. Really, uh, it's interesting about Isaiah chapter 55, and again, context is key. Context often provides us a lot of um, a lot of help in sometimes understanding when there's especially a two or three verse pericope to be read on a Sunday. So I'm. Go back to Isaiah 55, verse 1, where uh, we are encouraged to come, everyone who thirsts to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your... Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you." That's the first five verses of Isaiah 55. And that's where we get the context for seek the Lord while he may be found. See, it's less of an instruction, more of an invitation. In Isaiah 55, we are invited to come to the Lord. Those who thirst come to waters, those and come the one who has no money, buy and eat. Come get that which you do not have. Come to the Lord and he will satisfy you. And so, in our assigned reading from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, we get Seek the Lord that he may, uh, while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. While you still can. Here is the Lord's compassion freely given to you. As it says in verse 3, Or, I'm sorry, verse 2. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come and take pleasure in the compassion and the peace and in the love of the Lord, the forgiveness that he has. Call upon him while he is near. And then conversely, while uh, you may not have been seeking the Lord, if you are acting wickedly, if you are acting unrighteously, forsake his way. That's what verse 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him, let the one who is wicked or unrighteous return to the Lord so that the Lord may have compassion on him. Let him return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And now it's interesting um, because this again speaks to who we often are as humans We're reminded in this chapter of Isaiah that the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts. The Lord's ways are not our ways. Well, why might that be a good thing to be reminded of right after we are um, told to return to the Lord? Well, because exactly what what God promises to do when we return to him, when we repent and come to him, he gives us abundant pardon. He gives us abundant compassion. And so... Really, it's a great reminder that not only who God is and what his compassion is, but um, what we're called to do to go back to him. When we need something, and we all are in need of the forgiveness and the compassion, the mercy of God, we are all the one who thirsts, who has no money, and he invites us to come and be satisfied in him. And it's interesting, just after... Isaiah 55, verse 9, comes probably what is the more well-known few verses of Isaiah 55, and that's 10 and 11, which are the verses that say, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which... I sent it. So really this section of Isaiah 5, uh, 55, I should say, is a pretty poignant and great reminder of the compassion that God has uh, on all people, people that would um, not always follow his direction, who would be acting wickedly or unrighteously, and yet we are invited, comforted to come and forsake the ways of sin, forsake uh, the, the miserable things, uh, things we do, the awful things we say, uh, the evil thoughts we might have, come to the Lord so that he could have compassion on you, to forgive you and forgive you abundantly. So those are the four lessons for this upcoming Sunday, um, August 20th, which is, I should say, proper 20. It's always kind of interesting when uh, the proper and the date in the month line up perfectly like that. But the uh, is proper 20 of series a in the three-year electionary i do want to kind of go back though to that that first reading and just kind of highlight a few quick points uh as a reminder which is again that whole we live in a society where comparisons are so prevalent Uh, we can't help but compare ourselves to people whether it's through facebook whether it's through um what we see on tv whether it's through what we see driving down the street, um, but even in the church, we can so easily compare ourselves, unfortunately, to others, and do so in a, an envious, uh, a sinful way. And, and it's such a great reminder that parable from Matthew twenty that uh, we sh- we ought never to begrudge God for the mercy, the free gifts of grace that He not only gives to us, but wants all people to have, and that whether we have been Christians our whole lives or Christians for uh, a single day. It should not matter. We should rejoice in the fact that God gives his, his grace and his mercy to all and gives it abundantly, as Isaiah 55 would say. So that uh, concludes our Bible study for uh, this week. We look forward to having you back with us next week. And until then, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reminders you give us in your word today, especially uh, the reminders that uh, what you give to others and what you give to us, we should never, ever um, begrudge you for your generosity, that you have given us that free gift of life in your son, Jesus Christ, and that uh, we should rejoice and be glad in every moment that we can to share that abundant love, grace, and mercy with others. We pray that we would truly look to you to be our light and our salvation, especially in the midst of uh, the uncertain times of an upcoming election, a, a pandemic, and just the, the everyday stresses of life. We pray that we would never allow those things to uh, cloud uh, who we keep at the center of all that we do, and that is that is you, Lord. And we pray all these things in the, in the gracious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.